Let's pray. Jesus, as always, you know our hearts, and we want them to be changed to be more like you. <coughs> and there's no way that we can do justice to your word. So we just ask you, Lord, to, to place your hand upon us and open our hearts and minds to, to see more clearly what you're saying and to have a heart that longs for obedience so that we might be, Lord, may, we might gain your approval because of the things you've done to change our hearts and our minds. So we just look to your word and ask for understanding to your glory. Amen. I'm having a hard time because of what Wayne said. I keep picturing a eight or nine year old boy that learns he can't be a professional ball player. And my picture of him is in his room at night and then all of a sudden he notices the roaches on the floor running around and he goes you know I need to come up with some safe way of getting rid of these things <laughs> and so a career starts and it all because he can't play baseball so I don't know if your mind works this way or not but that's where mine went we're going to be in the uh, second chapter of the book of Revelation we won't get very far because the minute I think I'm finished with it, something else happens and I see that I'm not. <clears throat> to begin with, let's look at the last few verses of Revelation 1, verses 17 through 20 as an introduction to the letters to the seven churches in Asia. So those last three verses of chapter 1 or four verses actually, it says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore write the things which you've seen, and the things which are, and the things which will yet take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So what we have here is the living one places his hand on John and tells him not to be afraid and to write the things he's seen, meaning the vision of the glorified Christ. To write the things which are, meaning the state of the seven churches in Asia. And anytime you see that word Asia, that's the Roman designation of the area and it's modern Turkey. And write the things which will take place after these things, meaning the revelation of future history. Then Jesus tells us the seven stars in his right hand 
or the angels or messengers or pastors, we're not sure of the seven churches. The seven golden lampstands are the seven churches where Christ stands in unbroken fellowship with the churches on earth, regardless of the persecution they may face. And the first seven verses of the second chapter. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary but I have this against you that you have left your first love Therefore remember from whence you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am, re- I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do, do you have that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The seven letters to the churches follow an almost identical pattern. They're all addressed to the angel or messenger of the individual congregation. Next, the title of the writer is given. And the title that's given to each one of these churches is found in the first chapter where Jesus describes himself. To this church in Ephesus, the description is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. To five of these seven churches, he says, I know your works or deeds, some verses, some translations say. To the one of them, he says, I know your tribulation. And to one, he says, I know where you dwell. The heart of the message is a word of praise, a word of blame, or a combination of the two. And they close with some reference to his coming. And to each church there's a promise to the overcomer. These churches were not famous. The world didn't know who they were. The members were despised in the cities where they lived because of the God they worshipped and the lifestyle they lived. If they'd been wiped out by some catastrophe, there would have been little concern in the city or region. 
This is increasingly true of the church today. Because this is how the world views the church. And these seven letters reveal what Christ thinks of the church. And that's what matters because it's his church. And the gates of hell, he tells us, will not prevail against it. He shows us what the church is. And he shows us what the church should be. The first letter was sent to Ephesus. And it was both the church closest to the Isle of Patmos, where John was exiled, and it was also the capital of the Roman province of Asia. It was also a religious center dedicated to the mother goddess, who was called Artemis by the Greeks and Diana by the Romans, or vice versa, I'm not sure which. The temple dedicated to her was considered one of the wonders of the ancient world. And this was a city in which Paul spent about two years preaching, preaching the word, and where a riot occurred because the people were stirred up by the silversmiths, and they were concerned because they saw their livelihood coming to an end of making images of the goddess Diana, and it was threatened because Paul was preaching about the one true God, and they saw people abandoning Diana and believing Paul. The church in Ephesus apparently was founded by Aquila and Priscilla, who traveled there with Paul from Corinth and remained there after Paul left and went to Antioch. Later, Paul returned for this two-year period we were talking about. And still later, the work in Ephesus was continued by Timothy, And later, according to tradition, after Paul's death, by John. To Ephesus, the Lord says, he holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. He's the divine overseer of the church. And to each one, he says, I know your deeds and toil your hard work, and perseverance, your steadfastness, and you cannot tolerate evil men. He's not talking about evil contact, conduct of these godless neighbors of theirs. He's talking about the false teachers in the church. You know, it's telling to pay attention to Paul's farewell address to the Ephesian elders years earlier. He was on his way to Jerusalem. He was making haste because he wanted to get there before the day of Pentecost. And so the elders leave Ephesus and they come and they meet Paul. And Paul said, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, Men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. The prophecy was fulfilled. The difficulties in the Ephesian church did not arise from persecutions from the world. The trouble came from within. 
Years later, the Ephesian church was visited by some um, people of defenders of the church, and they found it to be barren, basically, more swampland than anything else. One commendation that stands out is that they cannot tolerate evil men. So many Christians today don't find it difficult at all to tolerate false Christians within the church. In Galatians 6, we're told to bear each other's burdens. And Romans 14 says we are to bear with the weak. But it never tells us we are to bear with the false. The church at Ephesus was commended for a lack of this kind of tolerance. Commended for lacking a tolerance for evil. The early church had people, many, many traveling teachers and preachers. They claimed to speak for God. Evidently, it was a constant thing in Ephesus and all throughout Asia and probably other places too. Paul had told the Thessalonians, do not despise prophetic gifts, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every form of evil. The church in Ephesus was outstanding because of its ability to distinguish between true and false apostles and its refusal to tolerate those who were false. Second John 9 and 10. Their patient endurance and bearing up for the name of Christ suggests that the problem with false teachers was not a temporary crisis, one, but one that exerted a severe test on the church as to their steadfastness. It was a continual thing. But the Ephesus church had a, had a reputation for their doctrinal purity. But then we get to the big but in, chat, in verse 4. You have left your first love. The struggle against false doctrine and false teachers had left the Ephesian church strong on doctrine but they'd left their first love. And this was a failure that undermined the very foundation of the church itself, undermined the very life of of a Christian. Jesus had taught that mutual love was the mark of Christian fellowship. John 13, 34 and 35 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Doctrinal purity and loyalty can never be a substitute for love. Verses that we know and have known for some time out of 1 Corinthians 13 the first three verses say if I speak with the tongues of men and angels 
but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I'm nothing. And if I give my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. The Ephesians are warned to remember the fervor of their first Christian experience. To repent because they've fallen into sin and to do the works they did at first, meaning the works of love. Remember from where you have fallen. I don't know about you, but it's a verse I think about almost every day. Remember from where you have fallen. You know, memory is a great gift. Looking back can be sinful, but it can also be a reminder of the unfathomable grace of God and a continuing call to faithfulness. It's up to us to be sure which one we follow. Unless the Ephesians repent, Christ will come to them and remove their lamp, stand from its place. No church has a secure and permanent place in this world. It's continuously on trial. The only solution to leaving your first love is to repent and to do the works you did at first. The works that spring from that first love. It's telling that five of the seven letters to the churches involve repentance. Every church's <coughs> light will be extinguished if it perseveres in its refusal to love Christ above all else. The church has no light without love. Verse 6 again reads, Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So the reprimand for having left their first love is followed by commendation for hating, just as Christ does the work of the Nicolaitans. We've got very little information on this group. But most likely, the prevailing opinion is that this was a heretical group mentioned here and also in the letter of Pergamon lately, where we're told that there's a relationship between the teaching of Balaam in the Old Testament and that of the Nicolaitans. There's a difference of opinion as to exactly who these people were. But many of the early church fathers, beginning with Irenaeus, thought they formed a heretical sect which was founded by Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Proselyte is a Gentile convert to Judaism. This is the Nicholas that you find in Acts 6 5, 
the same one, same verse, where the seven are chosen as deacons. People like Philip, like Stephen, and then the last one of the seven that's mentioned is Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Irenaeus writes that Nicholas was a false believer who later became apostate. And just in case you don't know, an apostate is somebody that held to the faith but then turns and repudiates it. So it's someone that abandons what he said formally that he believed. But because of who he, Nicholas, was, he had a lot of following because of the fact that he was one of the seven, one of the seven deacons, one of the seven that was called to serve the church. And he was able to lead a lot of people astray. And like Balaam, he led the people into immorality and wickedness. Clement of Alexander wrote concerning the Nicolaitans, they abandoned themselves to pleasure like goats, leading a life of indulgence. There's a lesser view of who the Nicolaitans were, and it's derived from a derivation of their name. Nicolaitan in Greek, Nikos meaning to conquer or overcome, and Laos meaning the people, which means you've got a group that exalts the clergy over the laity, the clergy over the people. So they believe, some believe, that they taught a severe division between these two groups. They taught apostolic succession, which means they themselves were false, even while they themselves were false apostles. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11, 14 and 15, that it's no wonder that false apostles and deceitful workers should transform, them, transform themselves into the apostles of Christ because Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. We need to remember that God has called ministers, not lords. The letter to the Ephesian church ends with a promise to him who conquers, who overcomes. The idea of conquering suggests warfare, the Christian life is an unrelenting, ongoing warfare against the powers of evil. Each of the seven churches ends with a promise to the overcomers, to those who obey the message of the letter and overcomes in the conflict against evil. The promise here is free access to the tree of life in God's paradise. Access to the tree that was formerly denied to man after the fall. And this is really not a special blessing to a particular group of Christians, all believers who have their names written in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, have access to, to the tree of life. So why then does John seem to make the promise of eternal life a particular blessing only for the overcomer. 
The answer is that every disciple of Jesus must be, in principle, a martyr and ready to take up their cross. And the cross is nothing less than an instrument of death. The conqueror is the one who is steadfast in loyalty to the Lord, even though it costs him his life. What God desires above all else is that we deeply love him. We must strive to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to repent when we fall short. Without love, there is no church. Let's pray. Lord, these are easy words to say, but they're words that uh, should cause us all to, to look into our hearts and see where we fall short and to repent. Lord, you, you make these things plain to those that will look. And I pray that all of us will look and just obey you, Lord, and do the things which we did when we first came to you. The things that were so life-giving and wondrous, Lord, like water, like a waterfall just immersing us in, into the wonder of God, that a God that we could never see, that now we can. So, Lord, we just um, ask you to open our eyes even more to see the loveliness of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.